How's everybody this morning? Let's stand up and let's pray. Well, I'm going to jump right into the message because I don't want to keep you for hours. <laughs> and I got a lot of slides to get through. So, um, so let's just uh, let's open our hearts to the Holy Spirit and let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the goodness of who you are. Holy Spirit, we welcome you in our lives. We welcome your ministry. We thank you that even as Jesus said that you're here to lead us and guide us into all truth, that we have an anointing that we've received and that we know all things and that we don't even need anyone to teach us, but that you will teach us all things. And so we trust your ministry in our hearts and lives. Lord, I ask you to anoint me this morning and uh, to give me words to say that will be helpful and productive. Anything, Lord, that isn't, let it just fall away and be totally ineffective. And I give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So uh, I started preaching on the cross a couple of weeks ago, and uh, <clears throat> I had no idea the controversy I was going to stir up uh, because I've been preaching this for 10 years, and I've never experienced this before. And uh, so anyway, it, it stirred up some controversy, and, and in the process, I kind of... Uh, inadvertently with some of the things that I said, opened this whole can of worms about hell and the afterlife. So this is my attempt not to put the worms back in the can, but to pull them up and look at them a little bit and spread them out. Um, so I'm going to do something I've never done uh, in that I can remember in all the time I've been preaching, and I've been preaching since I was really started preaching when I was... Well, my first job in ministry as a youth leader, I was 18 years old. And uh, I don't think I've ever really done a message that I can remember ever on hell. So we're going to talk about hell this morning. <laughs> uh, one of the titles that I'm giving it to it is Hell, Is It Down Under? So um, <clears throat> let's just, so, so here's the thing. I want to say this at the outset. I want everybody to hear me clearly, okay? Uh, you're going to leave with way more questions today than you are answers. So if you came here to get answers, I apologize to you ahead of time. Now, having said that, I want to also say this. My ideas and thoughts are uh, well-informed, um, but definitely not case-closed. Because I don't think... That this is not something that I want to be dogmatic about, okay? So what I'm saying here does not reflect uh, our church doctrine per se. So I don't want any of you to walk out of here and say, well, those people over there believe fill in the blank. Because I don't know what these people here all believe. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> so that's just an ignorant and foolish statement to say that, right? And the other thing is, I want you to have total freedom to hold to your convictions and believe whatever it is that you're going to believe. It's not my job this morning. It's not my intention to persuade you because, frankly, I'm not dogmatic about any of the any of these issues. One of the reasons I'm not dogmatic about it is because I've never been there. <laughs> like, I have no experience with this. I mean, you know what I'm saying? And so how can we speak dogmatically and with authority when... Um, we haven't experienced something for ourselves, number one, right? So it's all, um, let's call it informed speculation. Yes? Second thing is, I have not been exposed to all there is to know about the topic. 
It's amazing to me how closed-minded people will become when they don't even have all the facts. It's like, uh, you know, don't confuse me. I've already made up my mind. Don't confuse me with the facts. Right? Uh, Carl Jung, the great uh, psychologist, he said this. He said, certainty is a sure sign of an uncultivated mind. Certainty is a sure sign of an uncultivated mind. And I've just discovered on just about everything, the more you know, the less you realize you actually do know. Right? And this obviously is an emotional topic uh, because it, you know, it's hell. <laughs> We're supposed to be afraid of it. So having said all that, let me say, so what I'm sharing with you then is my, where I'm at in my journey, right? And inviting you to think with me, not trying to persuade you of anything. But let me say this. I do believe in hell. I'm saying that for everybody out there. I do believe in hell, number one. And number two, I believe it's someplace I don't want to go. (laughs) Those two things I'm settled on. I believe in it, and it's not someplace that I want to go. But now as to the actual nature of it, duration of it, and all that stuff, uh, you probably don't realize, but Christians have had throughout the ages different ideas and different thoughts informed by traditions and also informed by scriptures. Now, also, let me just say this, in 45 minutes or whatever, because that's kind of where I hope to keep this, probably run a little bit over, but we'll see, Um, you can't cover everything the Bible says about hell. So, you know, somebody out there is going to think, well, he didn't mention this scripture. I know I did the best I could to trim it down, okay, because I'm not going to spend weeks on this. So is everybody okay? So can we just have an agreement to to just, just listen with an open mind and think together and then give each other freedom and give me freedom to change my mind as well? Is that okay? All right. So, but, but the traditional concept in the West, particularly in American evangelicalism, is that hell is the place where God holds people and punishes and tortures them consciously and for all eternity. We think of it as a geographical place somewhere, right? Where souls go or people go after they die and really get it, right? And that's been down through the ages. So Ignatius of Loyola, in the Dark Ages, a Catholic figure, but also a mystic, he he says this, and and this kind of reflects for me, I think, certainly the evangelical idea that I was brought up with, uh, idea of what hell is. He says, let us imagine we see hell and the worst it has to behold. A horrible cavern full of black flames... Sulfur, devils, dragons, fire, swords, arrows, and innumerable damned who roar in despair. Imagine the worst, uh, the worst you can, and then say, all is nothing compared to hell. In other words, what he's saying there is imagine the worst kind of torment you can possibly imagine, and the worst that you can think of doesn't even compare to how bad God's actually made it for people. That's what he's saying. Uh, now, let's, let's look at this quote. Do we think God can find torments in nature sufficient to satisfy his provoked vengeance? No, no. He creates new instruments more violent. Pains utterly inconceivable to us. <clears throat> A soul for one slight and pardonable offense 
will suffer more than all the worst diseases, more than all the cruel torments invented by the most barbarous tyrants. Getting awful quiet in this Methodist church. Terrible, isn't it? Now, see, here's here's my issue because, and people say, well, why are you? I I I brought this up. If any of you follow me on Facebook, you know, I brought this up. One lady says, you know, why are you bringing this up? And uh, uh, this, thank you. This is uh, this is uh, you know, uh, not an important topic. It's it's not something that we need to be discussing or talking about. And and a lot of it's you know can be speculation, which I'm admitting at at the beginning. But here's here's my question because here's here's what it boils down to for me. Here's what it boils down to for me. What is the nature of the God that we say we believe in? What is he really like? What is God really like? Is God really good? And you can say, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe about hell. But see, it really does because it is dealing with the nature of the God that you worship and the nature of the God that you say you believe in. And the foundation of evangelical Christianity is basically... That God has created this place to hold people eternally and consciously forever unless they say some words about what Jesus did for them. Allah the sinner's prayer or Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And that's what they're talking about you being saved from. So the whole concept of salvation has to do with hell the whole concept of how our relationship with God is structured has to do with hell. And ultimately, the nature of the God that you believe in has to do with hell. And so everybody says, you know, well, God sends sinners to hell because he's just. And here is my question. Here's my question. If you look at this quote, and this is true, this is what they say. You know, one little sin is all it takes. You can be perfectly good your entire life, and one little sin is all it takes, and you're going to have that for all eternity. And somehow that's a superior justice to ours. So here's my question. When you think about your temporal existence, your temporary life, your 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, 100 years, whatever you get on this planet, you think about that in the expanse of eternity. And the Bible even says this in the book of James. James says, what is your life? It is but a vapor that appears for a moment and then vanishes. What is it that happens in that vapor that so provokes the heart of God that he has to hold you in conscious torment for the rest of that? There, here's this vapor, boom. I mean, whatever you did. And now there's justice by tormenting you forever. To me, that God is worse than Hitler. I'm just going to say it. That is tyrannical and evil and horrible to me. That is not justice. Well, then what do you do with the scriptures? We're, we're going to get into that. But before we do that, <clears throat> I, want to, I want to address something else. Oh, yeah. So here, here's why this matters. Here's another quote. I'm sorry, I forgot this one. Here's why this matters. Here's another quote. Because of what you become like the God that you worship. And here's what happened to some of the followers of that teaching. <laughs> Look at this statement. <clears throat> Talking about hell. This display of the divine character. See, it's coming to the nature of God. You see it? This display of the nature of God or the divine character will be most entertaining to all who love God. Will give them the highest and most ineffable pleasure. Should the fire of this eternal punishment cease, 
It would be in great me- it would in great measure obscure the light of heaven and put an end to the greater part of the happiness and glory of the blessed. <clears throat> so in other words, what he's saying is we're all going to be up there watching God torture these people in hell with tortures that the worst, most sadistic person on the planet could not have invented that are worse than that. And we're going to be deriving love for God and we're going to be taking ineffable, unspeakable, undescribable pleasure. And should that cease, then heaven won't be as glorious. Can you think of anything more sick? I mean, just think with me. Just be logical with me. Just reason with me. Set your set your religious traditions aside. Set your emotions aside. Set aside your own self-serving bias to prove yourself correct. And just ask yourself how sadistic that is. And yet, we choose to follow it. All right. Now, here's one of the things I had to get past. We, we always have... Um, these people and, and, and teachers that I've listened to that I've admired and respected over the years. And some of them, their testimonies begin by having a near-death experience and going into hell and experiencing hell. And then, ironically, all these people are saved after death. They all call on Jesus for salvation after they're in that place. And Jesus delivers them from it and sends them back to tell us all about how horrible it is and how we need to get saved. Or some people claim, you know, they've left their bodies and they've had these things and so they have a divine revelation of hell. Or I spent 23 minutes in hell or um, <laughs> whatever the case may be, right? And so what do we do with those things? What do, I mean, that, 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 you know, so I'm saying I don't know exactly what I believe because I haven't been there. And here's people who say I've been there and that's what I believe, right? And so what, we'll, we'll hold those things up and we'll say, see, here's proof of hell and we need to, um, we need to, uh, get, get people saved from this hell and, and, and they, they write books and they sell books and they go, they go on TV and, and, and all this stuff, right? But here's our problem. Uh, they're not the only people who've had near-death experiences. Uh, there is actually a place, a, a, a research foundation, the Near Death Experience Research Foundation, and there have been literally thousands upon thousands of what we would call peer-reviewed research that has been done. Uh, now, you understand, one of the things that's great about the scientific method is it does, it does take measures to eliminate what's called a self-serving bias. In other words, when a scientist goes in with a hypothesis to look at something, they have a preconceived idea of how it's going to be, and they're setting up the experiment to prove what they believe is going to happen. So therefore, in order for their research to be considered valid, it has to be evaluated by other people that don't have that same bias to say, yes, this is what this proves. To eliminate that. So what you need to understand is this. There have been thousands of people around the globe who have experienced near-death experiences. There have been a small handful of them that have gone to a place of torment. But the vast majority of them, I'm sure you've seen it or you've read something about it, they leave their body, they're floating around, they hear conversations, they... Um, They see the doctors operating or whatever, and then they see this tunnel with light. They go through the tunnel with light, and then suddenly they're in the presence of God, and they feel loved, and they feel peace, and and all this stuff, right? And then God, you know, somehow sends them back, or they get sucked back into their body because they're shocking them, or whatever the case may be, or grandma's praying, or whatever the case may be, and they go they go back into their back into their body. But here's our problem: of those thousands and thousands of accounts, it's not just evangelical Christians who claim they go to heaven. 
In fact, there are people who are Muslim, there are people who are Buddhist, there are people who are Hindus, there are people who are complete atheists who claim to have experienced encounters with God and encounters with heaven and encounters with peace who come back. Now, what do we do with that? Because you can't hold up these two or three or four people that have written books or whatever and say, see, there's a hell, and then ignore thousands of case studies and say all those other people are going, well, that's just, you know, you're being very intellectually dishonest. Very, very self-serving and you're picking and choosing. So I'm saying all this to say, let's set that aside. All of it. The people that have been there, people that haven't been there. And let's look at what the scriptures say. Now, the first thing, let me back that up, actually. Well, you've already read it. First, the, the most common thing as I was researching this. The most common thing I heard from people is that hell is separation from God. How many of you taught that, thought that, believed that? But here's a verse. Psalm 139, verse 8. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. <laughs> if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. How do we, how do we say that, saints? How do we say hell is separation from God? I can show you other scriptures. I'll show you one in just a minute. But clearly, uh, David is saying, if I'm in hell, there you are. <laughs> one of the verses that people used to teach hell is in Revelation chapter 14. And it says that, 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 that they will be uh, punished in the presence of the angels and the Lamb. So, I don't know where we get that. See, that's part of the problem is there's a lot of urban legend in the church. There's a lot of things that preachers just say that gets repeated over and over and over again and nobody does any kind of critical thinking and challenges it or because you don't dare. You don't dare challenge this topic. I mean, they will curse you as a heretic. They will shut you down. They will laugh at you, whatever. Uh, because, again, don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. Right? So it is not. I can tell you what hell is not. Hell is not separation from god watch this uh it's not turning for me for some reason first corinthians 15 verses 25 through 28 now this is paul's declaration of the end of all things he's saying this is how it's going to all get summed up he's talking about the resurrection uh some people say he's talking about the rapture in first corinthians 15 and here's what he says for he must reign jesus must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet so that includes all the demons and all the people don't believe in him right the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Let me ask you this question. Look at me, saints. What is the wages of sin? Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. What did God tell Adam and Eve at the garden? In the day you eat of it, you will die. What does it say here? Paul say that Jesus will destroy. What do you do with that? Keep going. For he's put all, uh, for he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted, or God. In other words, he's not putting God under his feet. You got it? Or the Father. Now when all things are made subject to him, Christ, then the, or, I'm sorry, to the Father, then son him, the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So what's what's this all about? Paul's saying this is all about Christ subjecting everything, destroying death, then he himself becoming subjected to the Father for this purpose, that God will be all, everybody say it with me, that God himself will be all, where? In all. Where's hell? How can you have 
throughout eternity when it's over, God as all in all and still have people suffering in hell. Where's the devil? Can God be all in the devil and him still be the devil? Can all can God be all in the sinners? Because if God is all in all, then who's suffering the torment? If God becomes all in all, then God is suffering his own torment. If hell, well, there's no place for hell. And there was silence in Pueblo West for the space of 30 minutes. See, we don't, we don't think about this stuff, do we? I'm not making this up. He didn't say he'll be some in, he'll be all in some. He'll be all in the saints. He's talking about his enemies. He's not talking about the saints. Alright. See, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the wages of sin is death. Paul even says that. The wages of sin is death. Then he goes on and says death will be destroyed. But somehow, in our modern evangelicalism, we came up with the idea that death wasn't sufficient wages for sin. God has to create new instruments of punishment and torture throughout all eternity to exact his justice. But where do we get it? Where do we get it? So, let's look at some of this. I don't know if this got turned off, Mike. Jesus... Now, here's another, here's another statement. So, so the, the daughter of Billy Graham, I'm watching this documentary, right? Cause I'm trying to inform myself. And they have the daughter, what's her name? Um, anyway, she's daughter of Billy Graham and she's representing sort of the evangelical voice. And she makes this statement. And then I heard other people make it too. They said, Jesus talked far more about the torments of hell than he ever talked about heaven. Anybody ever heard that? Jesus talked far more about the torments of hell than he ever... I heard that repeatedly as I was looking at stuff about this, listening to messages about this, but it's just flat not true. I mean, here she is on, you know, this is like the History Channel or something, so it's going out all over, and she says, Jesus talked far more, far more about the punishments of hell than he did about heaven. And yet, all you have to do is search your concordance to find out that Jesus only talks about hell 15 times. And he talks about heaven. That's just the word heaven. That doesn't even count all the times he mentions life or eternal life. Just the word heaven 141 times. Now here's my question. If the people that God so loved that he sent his son to save them were headed to this eternity of eternal conscious torment, was there anything more important that Jesus could have talked about? If he's representing the love of God. Okay, moving on. Here's one of the passages. Jesus says this, If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Right? So there's one of them. Now, here's our problem. <laughs> Let, let's back up. Let's back up the uh, slide. Um, we want to take this part literally, that they'll be cast into hellfire. And we want to take this part literally, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. But nobody wants to take eye gouging seriously. Right before that, he says, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. 
Now, nobody, so, so we're going to say there's a literal fire, there's a literal worm, and it's literally, and it'll never be quenched, it'll go on forever. But then we don't tell you the solution. The solution is not say some words about Jesus. The solution is maiming yourself. He didn't say it's better to say some words about me and enter into life than to per- perish in hell. He said it's better for you to pluck your eyeball out so we should all be like that. To enter into life. Of course he's not talking about that. Just say that with me, saints. Come on. Of course he's not talking about that. So how do we take one part symbolically and the other part totally literally? And and we don't even pluck a verse out. We pluck a verse inside of a verse and say, there it is. When When in actuality, the word that he's using there is this word Gehenna. Everybody just say with me, Gehenna. That's the Greek word that's translated hell in Mark's gospel there. And, uh... It was literally a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem where trash and dead bodies were burned. I had a pastor respond to my Facebook thing, and he says, the reason hell, uh, the, he, I, I couldn't make sense of it, frankly. Um, he said, the reason hell is eternal is because the soul is so priceless and so precious and so valuable. And I'm like, yeah, but the words that Jesus used to describe hell was for the trash. That's completely illogical. But you know, there's a guy who did a study, there's a guy who did a study that said that if you believe in this angry God thing, Dr. Andrew Newberg, MD, um, brilliant man, and he looked at what happens inside people's brain when they believe in an angry God and when they're focused on their on sin, when they believe in an angry God and they believe they have sin inside themselves, and he proved that it actually causes swelling in the limbic system and it actually does enough brain damage that a lifetime of believing that does the same brain damage as a lifetime of drugs and alcohol. Which might explain why you can't logically reason with some religious folk. It's just the truth. That's just the truth. But I, I forget, we throw out science. I don't believe that stuff. Unless it's convenient and helpful. But anyway, moving right along. So a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem where the trash and dead bodies were burned. The fire was always going. Is it possible? This is just a, this is just one question. Is it possible that when Jesus is talking about this, because this is he's talking to Jews prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, is it possible, and some people believe this, that he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which would be by fire in Rome in 70 AD, and the bodies of the Jews were taken to the garbage dump of Gehenna and burned? This was caused because they had so offended Rome with their persistent rebellion. But Jesus' followers believed his prophetic words and they left Jerusalem before the destruction and all of them were saved. But here's the point. Is Jesus talking about literal fire? Is hell a place of literal fire? Because here's my question. How does physical fire burn a soul? How, I'm going to say it again, how does physical fire burn a soul? How do you torment your, I mean, come on, pain comes from your nerve endings, right? These people, they had near-death experiences. When they leave, what eyes are they seeing with? They're seeing with the eyes of their soul. What ears are they hearing with? They can't be hearing with their physical eyes, and they can't be hearing with their physical ears. Right? So your soul has the ability to have experiences both painful and pleasant. 
But one thing's for sure, Jesus is speaking metaphorically. Even if you want to believe it's a place of eternal torment, he's speaking metaphorically. And I can hear somebody say, well, yeah, but they'll get their bodies back. Now, that's ridiculous. So they say, well, well, they'll get their bodies back and then and Jesus casts some uh, uh, spirit and body in, into hell. How, how is that happening? You get your body back because it'll be glorious like his. So what they're going to be, how is their body going to be sustained? They're going to be zombies. So now we got zombies in hell. Now we got zombies suffering with literal pitchforks and literal demons and literal fires. I mean, do, do you see how crazy this is? Jesus is illustrating something. Here, here's, here's our other problem. Mark 4.11, Jesus says this. And he said to his disciples, To you it has been given to know the mystery or the secret of the kingdom of God. To you it's been given to know a secret, a mystery, something that's been hidden. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables, which means it's not given to them to know. Right? So a parable hides truth. It does not explain truth. Jesus had to explain truth to his disciples. He had to interpret the parables. So he'd throw out a parable and see who'd hang around for the explanation. What is a parable? A parable is a short, fictitious story used to teach a moral or spiritual lesson. Synonyms for it are allegory or fable. So what is the purpose of a parable? To teach a moral or a spiritual lesson. Everybody be with me. And the story is what? Fiction. Now, listen to me. Not you guys, but some some people out there need help. Fiction means it's made up. If it's not fiction, it's not a parable. Got it? A parable means it's made up. If it's not made up, it's not a parable. The only other places Jesus talks about hell are in parables. So let's look at two of them. <sighs> Matthew 25. Now this is, this is the one where Jesus is getting ready to come at the end time for judgment, right? And it says here, it says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory and the nations, everybody say nations, and the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them. Who's the them? One from another. The nations, not individuals. You have to violate grammar to say it's individuals. The them refers to nations, not to people. Individuals. Everybody say yes, Aaron. All right, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides sheep from the goats. So he's got sheep on the right side, he's got goats on the left side, right? And they're nations. So you're, it's, you're divided by your nationality, not by your personal thing. First thing. And there's a reason he's doing this because he's speaking, Matthew's gospel is written to the Jewish nation to explain to them why their temple was destroyed in 70 AD and why their religious system is no longer valid. Because they were expecting the Messiah to come and exalt their nation, make their nation the head and not the tail, and all the other nations were going to be judged, and, and they were apocalyptic in their thinking, all the other nations were going to go to hell. Everybody else was going to go to hell except them because they believed right and had the right God. Does that sound familiar? 
And then all of a sudden now their temple's destroyed, it's burned with fire, and, 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 the, and the Christians are writing Matthew's gospel to them to explain to them why that happened. That's why he says they'll separate the nations. Now, let's look at the, what happens to the goats. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Let's stop right there. If God was preparing it for the devil and the angels, did, he, did your sin catch him off guard? How come he wasn't preparing it for you? All right. But remember, it's a parable. Everybody say it's a parable. Now watch why they're cast. Look at the reason. Four gives the reason. Right? Depart into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Four. Because I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer him saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and we did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into the everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, this causes a real problem for evangelicals. Because they tell you that you get out by saying some words about Jesus. By believing that he did something at the cross on your behalf. But when Jesus is talking, one of the only places he actually talks about hellfire, he does not give that as a reason. And remember, he's not separating individuals, he's separating nations. And at that time, Israel was the only nation that served Jehovah. They were the only nation that believed. Which means in the minds of his hearers... You have people who are worshiping Diana. You have people who are worshiping Asherah. You have people that are worshiping Baal that are these nations because nations were divided by the gods that they serve more than by their nationalities. And one of the reasons, the main reason, that Constantine in the 4th century chose Christianity as a way to unite his empire was because Christianity was the first to really go out and proselytize all the nations and bring them under a unity of faith rather than a unity of nationality. So to Jesus hearers, you got all these people that aren't worshiping Jehovah, but they're doing acts of kindness and they're doing acts of humanitarian service. And that's what determines whether or not they go to hell or go to heaven. Not what they believe about Christ, not what they believe about God, and certainly not what they believe about the cross or the blood or saying some words about Jesus. Ding, 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 ding. So how do we do this, saints? How do we take people to this passage and say, look, Jesus talked about hell over here, and then we completely ignore the reasons that he gives for going to hell or going to heaven? Because what Jesus is saying here is not everybody that believes in him is going to be saved. Not everybody that confesses his name is going to be saved. What he's saying here is everybody that joined the Red Cross, everybody that joined the Peace Corps, everybody that joined the Salvation Army, the Mormons that did their two-year trip or whatever and, and helped the, the people in the orphanages, or people that have prison, that they, they just go take visit people in prison. You don't even have to preach the gospel to them. Just go hang out with them. Go get on the list. Go find a prisoner that's, that's, that needs a visit and get on the list and just go sit with them for a while. 
The candy stripers in the hospital. Those are the ones that are going to heaven. So how do we do this? Because we have old McDonald Christianity. Here a verse, there a verse, everywhere a verse, verse. And we just pull it out of context and we put them in their pens and we say, see, so, and we come up with these crazy scenarios and tell people that's salvation. I'm just, I'm tired of it. And somebody's got to start telling the truth, make people think, get outside of these limited boxes and these intellectual ghettos that people have you trapped in so they can control you and keep you, keep you coming to their church and keep you sending money into their ministry and make you feel like you're a part of something that's important. And they never have to demonstrate any power. They never have to demonstrate any signs and wonders because all the power they're leaving to the afterlife. And who knows about the afterlife? Cause we haven't been there. We don't know. But one thing I know for sure, if you're dead, unless somebody's manifesting the power to bring you back, you don't have to come rebuke me and tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> Let's look at the next one. We're going to get to one in Luke 16, but you need to see how Jesus is revealing to his disciples before you read the parable, or you'll miss the lesson. Here's the lesson. That the parable Jesus is about to teach is designed to illustrate. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, meaning they had better food than he did. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in the torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between you and us there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to there cannot, nor can those pass from, uh, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Notice he has five brothers. Jesus uses that for a reason, and I'll come back to that later. I'm tucking that away. I'm going to come back to it later. All right. But I want you to notice it. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rises from the dead. Now, here's the other problem that we have. See, this clearly teaches hell, right? Clearly teaches a place of torment, right? Right? But here's our problem. The reason the rich man went to hell was because he was rich. Because Jesus said, let's, let's back up. Um, uh, let's, let's go back one slide, I think. Uh, verse 25. But Abraham said, son, son, father Abraham, son. He's a child of Abraham, which means he's a child of faith. He's Jewish. He's in the covenant. He... He had faith. 
Nowhere in there does Jesus say, you didn't say words about me, so you're in torment. No, no, no. Father Abraham tells him, you did well in this li- in your lifetime. You had good things. Lazarus, he did evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. That's why. Oh, but we, we scratch that part out. We just, we just mark it out. Are you all breathing? Are you sure? Because why? Because what's Jesus trying to teach? What's he trying to teach? That you cannot serve God and money. And he's using a parable, a fictitious story, to shock his hearers. And here's why. Because in Deuteronomy 28, here's what it says. It says, if you obey diligently the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and do everything that pleases him, these blessings shall come upon you. Blessed will you be in the city and blessed will you be in the field. Blessed will be your basket and your storehouse. Blessed will be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your womb. And God will make you plenteous in goods. Then it goes on and says, but if you disobey his commandments, you're going to be cursed and poverty is going to come upon you. Famine, where you're eating your kids, you're so hungry. So here's what they believed. That the people who were wealthy were obeying God and the people who were poor were disobeying God. And Jesus is giving them a parable and using hyperbole to shock them into realizing God isn't like that at all. Can you see it? Yeah, this is going about over about, over about like I thought it would. Can we just be honest? So here's my point. A parable by definition is a fictitious story, and yet these are the, the places where Jesus talks about hellfire. And we'll ignore the lesson, and we'll ignore what he's saying, and we'll pull those verses out of context and say, see, this teaches hell. And everybody's going there except us. That believes like us. Come on, guys. I'm, I'm feeling the depression. All right, so, so let's, let's shift. What is hell then? What is hell? I said at the beginning, I believe in hell someplace I don't want to go. What is hell? Everybody breathe a sigh of relief. All right, let's ask ourselves this question. What is heaven? Is heaven a place off yonder that has streets of gold and mansions? You realize that, that verse in John 14, I, I go to prepare a mansion, is not mansion. It's dwelling place. It's actually room. In my father's house, there are many rooms. It doesn't make sense in my father's house are many mansions because geometrically that doesn't work. I have a house, not a mansion. I can't fit one mansion inside my house, much less many. If it had been translated right, in my father's house are many rooms. But we're going to streets of gold, mansions, and all that stuff, because somebody, Jesse Duplantis, went there or something. Came back and told us about it. Right before he asked for the millions of dollars for his airplane. But anyway, never mind. <laughs> he might need to go read that other parable. But anyway... <clears throat> Did you know Jesus tells us what heaven is? Jesus tells us what heaven is right here in John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life. Watch this. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That they may know you. Everybody say no. And that word know is a Greek word that means know by experience. Experiential knowledge of God. To have an experience with God. See, I, the people, that, they, can, they can come up with all kinds of conjecture how I came to some of these questions and some of these conclusions. I'm going to tell you, it came out of experiencing God. It came out of encounters with the Holy Spirit. It came out of encounters with, with, with heaven. 
that shook my thinking, that left me quiet for days, <laughs> that made me go back and look at the scriptures differently. And so people can say, you're crazy. They can say, you're a heretic. They can say, you're leading people to help. Whatever they want to say about me, they can say, but there's one thing they can't do. They can't take away my experience that I've had of God. And see, Jesus said this is eternal life. It's knowledge. It's knowing. It's experiencing God. It's experiencing the true God. And I'm going to tell you something. The God that I've experienced is nothing like a God that holds people in eternal conscious torment for all eternity because they smoked a cigarette or watched a porno movie or went to a strip club. Okay, that went over about like I thought it would too. Think about it. Heaven is a state of knowledge of the true God and His Son. It's a state of consciousness experienced now and in the life after. So here's the good news, saints. You ready? Here's the good news. When you have an experience with God, nobody can take it away from you. When you experience His love, if you have a moment where you gave your life to Jesus, maybe you said the sinner's prayer and you had peace come over you, a peace that passes all understanding, you experienced the knowledge of God. When you got baptized in the Holy Spirit and you felt the power of God, you experienced the, the things of God. When you were going through a difficult time in a valley and you knew that, that you should be overcome with grief or overwhelmed by life, but there was some presence or force that was sustaining you and getting you through those dark moments, you had knowledge, experiential knowledge of God. You you knew the true God and you knew Jesus Christ whom he had sent and that experience is yours and it is yours alone and nobody can give it to you but God and nobody can take it away from you for even Paul said I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus and you don't have to wait till you die to get it that's why Jesus said that we're supposed to pray thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven when the kingdom kingdom comes when eternal life comes it's not something you die to get it's something that you get when you engage heaven and the true knowledge of god comes across to you and the kingdom of god comes into the earth and the will of god is done on earth as it is in heaven and if you have that you have it for all eternity you may have had five moments of peace five seconds of peace but if it came from god you will carry that peace with you throughout all eternity because it is eternal life that you may know Him and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. The moment heaven breaks in on you, you're saved. The moment heaven breaks in on you, you carry that knowledge with you. Nothing can separate you from it. Nothing can take it away from you. You don't have to figure out, did I get baptized right? You don't have to figure out, did I say the prayer right? How many of you, I prayed with Pat Robertson every time he prayed the stinking prayer back in the 90s. Because I didn't want to go to that place of torment. I got sprinkled in the Methodist church. Oh, maybe that isn't good enough. I need to get dunked in the church of Christ or whatever it was we were going to. And me, I got dunked backwards. Maybe I was supposed to get dunked forward. And then somebody said, no, you got to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And no, get baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I'm like, well, I'll just do it all, you know. I baptized myself in the name of Jesus and the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Backwards, forwards, dunk, sprinkle. Whew, I said it right. You don't have to have that kind of neuroses. See, we've said, we said God will save you if you get the facts right. And Jesus said eternal life is experiencing heaven now. You have it now and in, in, 
the age to come. So is it possible that hell is also a state of consciousness? Because remember, I told you, physical fire can't torment a soul. So what if hell is also a state of consciousness that you can experience in this life and in the hereafter? Anybody ever been hurting and it felt like fire in your soul? Anybody ever commit a sin and feel really guilty about it and it feels like a pitchfork going through you? Suck the air out of the room. You can't say hell's a state of consciousness. That's a new age idea. That's an Eastern mystic idea. Actually, it's a David idea. As in Psalms. Psalm 9, 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Block him out of their consciousness. Psalm 18, 4 through 6. The pangs of death surround me. This is David. Is he lying? The pangs of death surrounded me. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew word for hell. The sorrows of hell surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry came before him even to his ears. He's talking about a state of consciousness. He's talking about a state of torment. He's talking about a state of mental and emotional suffering. And he calls it hell. And I could show you passage after passage after passage where even Jesus said, even it's even said of Jesus, he did not leave my soul in hell nor let his Holy One see corruption. When was Jesus' soul in hell? Well, the only place you can find it in Scripture was when he's in the garden and it says, my soul is distressed even to the point of death. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's a state of consciousness. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me and the pains of Sheol or of hell laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. All while he's alive. Wow. So David keeps saying that he has his own hell while he's alive. If I had just stood up here and said, I think hell is the, the, the emotional state that you're experiencing right now. You guys would say, oh, you're a new age heretic. No, I'm Bible informed. Okay. All right, let, let's look at this. Hell is, for, let's, let's just suppose, let's suppose you're right. Let's suppose hell is a geographical place with literal fire and a person goes there uh, and let's suppose that even that it's eternal. All right? I'm going to concede all those points. How do you know a person can't still get saved? So here's the other thing that's dumb about it. Think about this God who's going to send you to hell that he created instruments of torment that no one had ever thought of. And he's going to send you to hell. And the, the way you get out is saying some facts, believing in him and saying some words about Jesus. Right? And then he's going to put you in an environment where you're, you can't see or hear him. And there's a devil loose there to deceive you. 
Are you breathing? So you have to make it in that. But then you die. Then you can see the spiritual world for exactly what it is. Then you can see the consequences of your choices for exactly what they are, but it's too late. Because you had to make the decision when you didn't have all the facts. You had to make the decision when you didn't have all the knowledge. Is that cruel? What if it's possible for a person to be saved after death? What if it's possible? Because look at this verse that people don't want to deal with. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom, or by the Spirit, he also went and preached to spirits in prison. The word there for preach is evangelion in Greek. So you could also translate it. He went there and evangelized to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. He's not talking to the saints in Abraham's bosom. He's talking about the ones who were disobedient, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. See the heart of God? Only eight people were saved. The rest of them are in torment and in prison and whatever. And what does, what does Jesus do? He goes for those and he preaches. The, he evangelizes hell. If he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, why can't he be evangelizing hell right now? To the degree that it exists. Now, if you think about hell as a state of consciousness, everybody, everybody look at me. Let me bring this home. If you think about hell as a state of consciousness, then Jesus' parables make sense. Because what causes our suffering is being consumed with yourself. So, when did we not clothe you? When did we not visit you? In other words, what he's saying is, listen, if God is love, then a consciousness that forgets God forgets how to love. And so Jesus is saying, you didn't know love. So you're going to enter into fire because because you're... What, you think your soul just changes instantly when you die? If all you've done has been self-consumed, if all you've done is lived with hatred in your heart, if all you've done is lived with bitterness about how life has treated you, when you leave this body, guess what? All your coping mechanisms are gone. And you'll enter into the fullness of the suffering of the consciousness that you created. And a person who's doing that doesn't have time for anybody else. The rich man is spending all his effort gaining wealth, gaining materialism, and no effort polishing his soul. So when he dies, he loses all his material comforts. Ah, you were in comfort. He loses all his material comforts and enters into the state in which his soul was, but he could not see. Just throwing out some possibilities. Whereas Lazarus didn't have anything. So what was he doing that whole time? Is it possible he was working on learning how to be happy from within because he couldn't find happiness without?
why he had five brothers, by the way. Because five in Scripture represents five physical senses. And I don't have those material comforts anymore. <laughs> I don't have time for God. I only have time for what my five brothers, for, my, for what we can gain. All right. But here you have Christ evangelizing hell. Finally, Revelation. 21, verses 23 through 25. The city, the heavenly city, had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and their honor into it. Look at this. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. And there shall be no night there. Its gates shall not be shut. Why? In ancient times, did cities close their gates? Same reason we're trying to close our borders. So that strangers and enemies and those that are so unlike us can't get in. And God does not close His gates. The gates of the heavenly city shall always be open. Before you walk out of here and think, oh, he just preached heresy, I want to hold up C.S. Lewis, who was considered to be one of the top conservative Christian apologists in the 20th century. And if you read his book, Surprised by Joy, and you read his book, The Great Divorce, especially The Great Divorce, he paints a picture of hell as a person who continually chooses to reject the love of God. But that love is always present. And at any moment that they want to turn and embrace the knowledge of God, any, at any moment they want to allow that to penetrate into their heart, they can go into the city because her gates shall never be closed. Let me bring it home. Which image of God is more like love? A God who says, you've offended me with your petty sins, therefore I'm going to come up with new torments and keep you there for all eternity, even though it happened in a vapor of time. Or a God who's given you complete free will <laughs> and has said, you can know my love or not know my love, and it has nothing to do with what you believe about the atonement of Christ. It has everything to do with experiencing relationship with him who says, I will allow you to choose to keep continually rejecting me, but I will continue to send you. If you're ruling and reigning with Christ in the ages to come, how do you know you won't be evangelizing hell? Who continually throughout eternity offers people the opportunity of redemption and hope and salvation and love whose gates are always open. Which one would you rather believe in? One that's more sadistic than every dictator ever known to man put together? Or somebody who makes your goodness look evil? Because if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? Even into eternity. I don't have all the answers. I hope I've made you think. 
if I've made you angry, you might want to examine your soul. Because here's my issue as a preacher, and I'm done. Here's my issue. For years, I told people, just say some words, and you'll be okay when you die. And they suffered with anxiety disorders, with depression, with fears and torments and pains inside their soul. And is it possible that when they stepped out of this life, all that stuff confronts them? Or here's the alternative. Teach people about a loving God who can bring healing into their life right now, who can meet them where they're at right now, who can help them get out of the hell that they're in right now. Connect them with that God. Allow them the space to begin experiencing them in a, begin experiencing Him in a personal relationship. You think that person, when they die, God's going to be like, well, we did some good stuff down there. We got you healed of some hurts. We answered some prayers. You realize God even answers heathen prayers. If He doesn't, throw out the sinner's prayer. All together. Because that is the heathen of the heathen prayers. Because you're a heathen before you pray it, and then you get born again, supposedly. That's what they say. We did some, can you see God? We did some good stuff down there. We brought you some healing. We answered some prayers. We got you a job when you needed a job. We got you a car when you needed a car. But, man, you sure missed the boat on accepting me as your sacrifice for sin. So depart from me. And we're going to sit here. And all of the saints are going to watch you in torment and pain and struggle and get off on it. And should it ever end, it's going to diminish the light and the glory of what we got here. And we don't, we don't want, we don't, by all means, we don't, we don't want to alleviate your suffering and dampen our party here. <laughs> Have one more drink of bliss. Oh, look at them suffering down there. Is that really what you want to follow? Is that really what you want to believe? Because I don't want to have any part of it. And I'm unashamed to say that. And you know what? Here's the thing. You can be thoroughly biblical. You can be a follower of Jesus. You can practice the teachings of Jesus. And you can experience the knowledge and the love of God. And you can throw away that stuff and still be a Christian. I don't care what anybody says. All right, let's pray. (laughs) Father, uh, help us. Just help us to to just be at peace and be at one with one another. And Lord, I'm just asking right now for, even as the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, that the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him would be granted unto us. That we would be strengthened with power in our inner person by your spirit. That we may right now know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. That we right now might be filled with all the fullness of God. And as your redeemed saints, Lord, we look forward to the day when you will be all in all and death will be destroyed. And there will be no more pain, no more sorrow. The old things will have completely passed away and all things will have been made new. We look forward to that day in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Hope you enjoyed that. Hope it made you think. Have a blessed day.